We're on chapter 4 now. In our last class we ended on verse 6. Where Krishna begins to reveal his true nature. And his true nature is not specific to Krishna as we were talking about. It is not confined in that particular form. He himself says, I've been born many times. I've come again and again. Sometimes it's been Krishna, sometimes it's been Babaji, sometimes it's Yogananda. Sometimes it's so many saints, as we said last time, the way our Guru said it, when you are one with God, you are God. And so let's dive deeper into this concept of both the avatar, as Krishna will now explain, but what a self-realized, a God-realized master truly is. This is verse 7 and 8. O Bharat, Arjuna, whenever virtue or dharma declines and vice and adharma is in the ascendant, I incarnate myself on earth as an avatar, appearing from age to age in visible form, I come to destroy evil and to re-establish virtue. Now this is where Krishna is sharing with us why he or any self-realized master would return again and again. Uh, what is the um, purpose behind their incarnations? And of course, here on the surface, it seems, and especially when we look at it from the perspective of the scriptures that we know of, okay, they've always come, you know, they've slain kings and they've overcome these great wars. Uh, Lord Rama had to, you know, rescue Sita and destroy Lanka and Ravan and Krishna had to do that with Kans. Now he's doing it with the Mahabharata. So our association somehow with this idea of destroying evil is the destruction of somebody or some army or some ideology. Of course, that's not really what Krishna is talking about. Whenever dharma declines and adharma is in the rise. Now, there is no real English equivalent to these words dharma and adharma. There is no, of course, we loosely translate them into um, virtue and vice, into good and evil. But uh, when we say those English words, somehow we associate it with people or things that they're doing. But of course, here we have to come back to the very purpose or the concept of Sanatan Dharma, which is the eternal religion, which is what each one of us are living. The way our Guru said, Sanatan Dharma is as true here on earth as it is on the farthest galaxy in the farthest sphere of the universe, because it is truth, nothing more, not an ideology, not an understanding, not a concept, not a religion created by man. And Sanatan Dharma very clearly states this. We have come from God and everything that we're doing, this entire journey is about returning back to God, back to that source. Or better still, we have come from bliss and everything that we're doing is that seeking of that bliss to return to it once again. So when that context is established, then when I look at dharma and adharma, what I'm seeing is those things that are aligning us, are driving us, are directing us 
towards the fulfillment of Sanatan Dharma, towards the fulfillment of uniting back with Satchitananda, those things are in attunement with Dharma. Those actions, those concepts, those words, those ideologies, those thought processes, that becomes Dharma. And anything that's drawing us away from that, reality that draws us much more towards separation towards ego identity then that becomes a dharma so it's not about which king to kill it's not about all of us now are drinking more and eating more non-vegetarian food so krishna says chalo i have to go down and fix this the thing about evil and i have said this before in some satsang is that it stems from a dharma it is the natural um outward expression as we go more towards separation more towards an ego identification we naturally do those things that become these outward forms of evil or vice and as we naturally go towards that unity towards bliss towards our highest self we naturally do those things that are considered good and are considered virtuous so virtue and evil are just byproducts of us following the path of dharma or adharma. And so when Krishna is talking about what the avatar's purpose is, he's saying whenever on planet Earth the majority of the energy begins to move towards this separation, move towards material, you're just just away from that unity. Now, of course, that's exp expressed outwardly through materialism, through greed, through, you know, Jealousy. wanting to control, to anger, through all the things that we are very well familiar <laughs> with. <laughs> so, Krishna says that is why these great masters, avatars, now avatar again is an important reality to recognize, is not just the avatars that we think of when we look back on our Hindu tradition. Because the very next line, Krishna says, appearing from age to age in visible form, I come to destroy evil and re-establish virtue. Now, Krishna here is not saying, yeah, and I've come, you know, I came six, seven times before. Uh, and he's not establishing what those forms were. Again and again, age after age, I appear in visible form. Now, this is not something um, our Guru has specifically said. It's a known observation of mine. So take it however, don't take it as gospel truth. But when you look at the avatars as is traditionally understood, you've got Matsya, you had Kurma, you have Vahar. So you've got the fish, you've got the turtle or the tortoise, you've got the... Um, the wild boar, then you've got Narasimha and he's the half lion, half man. Then you've got Vaman who's the dwarf. Then you've, you know, you see really expressed in that process. What do you see? I see expressed in it the theory of evolution. Life started in the waters, the fish moves into an amphibious reality, the tortoise, moves into a mammalian reality, the vahar, moves into half man, half beast, moves into a dwarf where man's not fully yet expressed. And I see the dawning of consciousness more than specific forms of, oh, Vishnu came as a fish and then Vishnu came as a, you know, boar and then Vishnu decided. 
And of course, we think of these avatars as being the avatars of Vishnu because Vishnu, of course, represents the preservative reality, the preservative energy of consciousness. The way Swami Kriyananda explains it in the full commentaries of the Gita, um, he says that Vishnu, Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva are really aspects of Om. And Om is that first vibration that separates from God as Satchitananda, as ever-existing, ever-conscious, motionless, formless, infinite bliss. And Om is that first movement, the moment vibration was created, which vibration is outwardly represented as sound. And so Om represents that first separation, the first impulse towards creation. And Om, just like everything else, has a starting point, a crescendo, and then a ending point. So you've got the Brahma, you've got Vishnu. Now Vishnu naturally seems to have a lot more territory, a lot more domain. And then of course Shiva comes in. And this process is not just happening on the macrocosmic, the creation of this universe and the eventual destruction. This is happening moment by moment. The creation of new cells and the maintenance of cells in our body and the destruction. The creation of thoughts and the maintenance of a thought and the end of a thought, of actions, of words. Everything follows, of course, that same pattern. Everything expresses Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesh, Shiva in no matter what it is that we're doing. But Vishnu naturally represents the maintenance, the preservative energy. And so the avatars, we draw that awareness from Vishnu because that's what they're doing. They're maintaining the balance. They've come here to bring us back again and again. And they have to do this often. And they have to do this because mankind has a penchant, has a tendency towards, you know, one person comes and says, okay, this is the direction you have to take. And then we just keep going, not realizing that they've only asked us to go in this direction because it brings us back into the center, brings us back into balance. We then continue on in this direction. And then someone else has to come and give us the other direction. And when we were talking about the yugas, as Krishna says, age to age, every yuga has an appropriate response, has an appropriate understanding, has an appropriate consciousness prevalent from which the avatars, the self-realized masters have to share with us. Um, the way our guru would give the example, he says, you know, say, take for example, Buddha. He came at a time where ritualistic understanding of the Vedas was so ingrained that it was all about, you know, which God am I going to have to please to get what and which, you know, mantra do I have to say to for what effect. And so Buddha had to essentially break away from the very concept of God because people were creating this really transactional reality with God and especially with the lesser gods. And so he moved into a much more, uh, you know, go within yourself and find the truth. And of course, then that became a very atheistical understanding. And there was a tendency in the Buddhist tradition to move towards an atheistical understanding that there is no God, that nirvana means the state of nothingness. And of course, then comes Adi Shankaracharya a couple centuries later, and he helps reestablish the fact that, oh, wait, wait it's not these gods. It's the Satchitananda that we are 
uh, aiming for. And he tries to redirect humanity's understanding in that moment towards, no, you have to come back. It's not that we're looking at Vedic realities, but we're looking at that ultimate reality. But again, in his process, he was a Jnana Yogi, a great Jnana Yogi. And then centuries passed by and that whole process became very mental, very dry. And then the bhakti energy had to come in through Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and others who had to bring in the heart and the joy of seeking God. So you see them coming again and again, redirecting our footsteps. And here in this age, you've got Babaji, you've got these great Kriya masters, very specific for the Dwapar age. But that's what's happening here. They're coming again and again. And it's important for us to relate to them as the avatars, which is that consciousness that has completely merged with the divine, where there is not even an iota of separation. In that consciousness, there is no hierarchy. There is no greater and lesser. Of course, on the outward stage, some of them play or are given the task of a more worldwide role and certain uh, live a very reclusive inward role. But in their love, in their unity with God, there is no difference whatsoever. And then Krishna goes on to say, One, O Arjuna, who by intuition comprehends the truth of my divine manifestations and selfless deeds in this vibratory universe, will never again, after he leaves his body, need to incarnate in outward form. He will attain me. Now again, the me here, Krishna is speaking from that perspective of that universal consciousness that flows seamlessly through him. And this is what he's asking of us. Who by intuition comprehends the truth of my divine manifestations and selfless deeds in this vibratory universe. When I come into this vibratory universe, I create and I take on personalities and I take on outward roles. I take on likes and dislikes even. I take on preferences. But he who by his intuition can discern and perceive the truth behind my divine manifestation. So for us, what does that mean? Our job is to perceive and discern by our intuition the divine manifestation of our Guru, to look behind Paramahansa Yogananda and see God's consciousness shining through him. Because Paramahansa Yogananda too is just one limited form, one incarnation that he took. How many has he already talked to us about? How many incarnations has he taken where we would never ever even relate to him as a saint? He, he talked about himself being William the Conqueror, he who unified, conquered England and unified England. He talked about himself being a Spanish king, Ferdinand III. So in that particular incarnation, neither of us would be like, wow, there's this saint, I want to sit by his feet and I want to receive. Because the job given to him was like the job given to Arjuna, to conquer, to overcome, and outwardly as well, to destroy evil or adharma. And our role as Arjuna, as disciples, are, is to comprehend intuitively. That's why this relationship is not an outward relationship. This relationship is primarily intuitive, where we can see behind the outward form, 
where we are able to go beyond their personality, beyond the deeds they had to do in this vibratory universe. Krishna very clearly says vibratory universe because he's bringing our attention both to the concept of Om and to the concept of duality. As long as we are in this vibratory universe, we're going to have to play this outward role as well. And of course, he who does that will never again, after he leaves his body, need to incarnate in outward form. He who merges in his consciousness with Krishna, with the divine manifestations of God, as they come to us in the form of our gurus, then our job is done. And so he's asking, Krishna is asking us very specifically to tune into his divine manifestations. Now, his divine manifestations, again, doesn't mean the Ram and the this and the Vishnu in the form that we understand. His divine manifestation, God's divine manifestation is anyone who has attained unity with him. And especially if you've already considered one of them to be your gurus, then that is our divine manifestation through whom we will create this intuitive link back to God. Purified by ascetic wisdom, released from attachment, fear and anger, and completely absorbed in me, many have attained me. So now he's talking about a lot. So many have gone through this process. Again, he's not saying that I am special and I am this, you know, unique, perfected form. Many have attained me. Many have achieved the state that I am right now speaking to you from. And this is what the Gita is really about. Achieve this state of consciousness that I am expressing to you right now. And many have done that. But how have they done that? Through ascetic wisdom, by being released from attachment, fear and anger, and being completely absorbed in me. And we have to learn to absorb ourselves in the consciousness of these great ones. Of Krishna, if that's the form that most appeals to you, the outward form is just the window through which we can gaze into infinity. Because otherwise our minds can't comprehend infinity, can't comprehend the vastness of bliss. We don't even know where we came from. So these great ones condense that, the infinite form, into something that we can connect with, relate to, work with, feel, learn their words, learn their lifestyle. And thus we start to attune and develop that inner intuitive perceptions. O Arjuna, in whatever way I am approached, in that way do I respond. All men come by whatever path to me. Again, another very beautiful, very grounding truth. Because on one hand, you'd say, okay, whichever way, which means whichever God I, you know. But what he's really saying is, in whatever way I am approached, in that way I respond. Now, what does that mean? If I approach life for material gain, it is God who responds to me in the form of that material gain. If I'm looking for love, if I'm looking for success, if I'm looking for pleasure, if I'm looking for fame, if I'm looking for whatever it is, in whatever way you approach me, because essentially he's saying, there's no other reality but me. There's nothing else going on here but me. 
And it's up to us how we approach him. And that is the response we will draw from him. No matter what we are doing, the way Paramahansa Yogananda Ji said, everybody is on the spiritual path. There is nobody who's not one way or the other walking towards the bliss of their own selves. Sure, we might take a lot of detours, we might get distracted here and there, we might decide to take the long route, but we're all moving there. And every experience is us relating vibrationally to the different manifestations of the divine. Krishna says, come and meet me at my highest essence here, and I will give you complete freedom. But then he's also saying, I actually exist here, 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 all the way to the lowest possible vibration, even of tamas. I exist in all of it, but how you approach me, that is how I will respond to you. Those who work to fulfill their earthly desires worship the gods, aware that success of this kind can be reached with relative ease. So, of course, we talked about the gods, the devas, in one of our previous classes, and we talked about them being those vibrational manifestations. There is a deva of success, which means he's the highest potential for success. There is a deva for money. That is why we think Lakshmi represents that abundance, that prosperity. She's a vibration that if we attune to, we'll be able to allow that prosperity and abundance to flow into us. There is a deva for, you know, uh, victory in battle and there is a deva to fulfill your deepest uh, gastronomic desires and, you know, for just children. goes. There's a deva for children. There's just that's the beauty of the Vedic perspective of life is, okay, if you are anyway going to want these things in the world, why not at least create a divine connection in the process? But of course, Krishna says here, if they're only here to fulfill earthly desires, they're going to worship these gods because they are aware that success of this kind can be reached with relative ease. If I attune to these lower forms, I can more or less, I mean, we've all seen it. It's, you know, if we just put out the right amount of energy, if we do, you know, the right things, more or less we tend to achieve what we've set our minds to. But achieving God is far, 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 far harder than anything we'll ever set our minds to achieve in the world. An admixture of the three gunas, with the diverse karmas of individuals produces the four castes, as we've already talked about in quite detail. Though I am active in creation through these influences, know that I am ever actionless and unchanging. So what is Krishna saying? He's like, I'm also these gunas. I'm also the karmas. I am those influences. I am those consciousnesses of the various castes. And though I am active, that means though I am present in each of these realities, know that I, in myself, capital S, am ever actionless and unchanging. Swami Kriyananda in again, the expanded commentaries at this time gives this very, very appropriate and um, just the right example of 
the concept of dreaming, the dream world. And this is one that even in the scriptures, we, it talks about that creation is a dream of God. And that's both poetic, but also has a very literal reality to it. Because in the dream, now let's take, because it, it helps us understand how consciousness can express itself in so many different ways. So when we're in a dream, it is our consciousness that expands itself to create the entire dream world. So everything in the dream world has been created or is essentially our consciousness expressing itself as the trees, the clouds, the weather, the sun, the roads, the flowers, the people, the buildings, the emotions, the fear, the excitement, the pleasure, the confusion. I mean, anything you are experiencing in your dream, anybody, anything you're interacting with in your dream, it's just your consciousness that has infused itself and has expressed itself in all these multiple ways. The, the heat that the sun rays will offer on our hands is just our consciousness and which has created that sensation. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating and a little bit beyond our comprehension, yet we do it every day. It's something we're all going through all the time. So in here, however, you and I, as we dream, we identify with that one person, even in the dream. We are everything, we are everyone, we are every emotion, sensation, yet, we think of ourselves also, ah, that's Shurjo. In the dream, there is Shurjo interacting with Narayani, interacting with, you know, running in the grass, all that, but that is Shurjo. Now, God, Krishna, is like that consciousness in absolutely everything. Yet, like the dreamer, we're not actually doing anything. This is the weird part of how to be active and inactive and motionless at the same time. We're on our beds, just sleeping. We're still. We're not running on in the fields. We're not having a fight with a friend in our dream. We're not fighting a battle, you know, in the dream. All of that's happening. Our consciousness is expressing itself. Yet, we're just motionless. We're just separate from it all. And that is that relationship Satchitananda, God's consciousness has. So when the avatar comes, what does he come? He enters the dream world, but he's the one person in the entire dream who knows he's in a dream, who can control that dream, who knows every aspect of that dream, who recognizes his unity with the dreamer, yet follows the rules and regulations of the dream. The way Paramahans Yogananda said, even though it's all a dream, but if you hit your head in a dream, your dream head is going to hurt. So it's not that, you know, we're not going to experience pain and problems and issues. And this is where Krishna says, if you relate to me as the world, wherever you relate to me, that's how I will respond back to you. So if you're looking for worldly success, know that in this vibratory world that doesn't ex exist, Without duality, if you're seeking success, know that you will also be seeking failure. 
If you're seeking money, know that you will also seek the fear that that money will bring you of losing it. If you're seeking human love, know that you will also naturally experience human disappointment. So Krishna is just laying it out there extremely impersonally. How you relate to me is how I will respond to you. And we in the dream where Krishna is in everything, yet he's not involved in anything. Yet he's identified with the dreamer, still motionless. And that's what we try to experience in our meditations. We try to touch upon that still reality, that central reality of Krishna within us that is untouched by anything that is going on. When we wake up in the morning and we're like, oh, that was just a dream. I was never that beggar. I was never that king. I was never that uh, horrible human being. Ah, I've lived many lives, as Krishna says. I remember all of them, Arjuna, but you remember yours not. And when we wake up from the dream and the details are all fuzzy, and I was like, what was that? I, I, all, I think I did this. And that's how we are. Whereas Krishna no knew, knows exactly every moment of that dream, every atom of that dream, is Krishna is fully aware of. Yet you and I are just kind of half asleep all the time, barely making it through our existence. And this is a wonderful place, in fact, to stop, just to contemplate this and to really think about the role of the guru from that perspective. Think about the guru as the only individual in your dream who knows what's going on. And what are they there for? They're not there to tell you how wonderful they are, again, to worship me and think only of me. The only thing that the Guru wants is that we too wake up. And they're going to try everything possible to help us wake up. And one of the ways to learn to wake up into that consciousness is in the dream to attune to Krishna's consciousness, to the Guru's consciousness, to the Master's consciousness. Because they have already woken up. And if we start tuning into that, Begin little by little, we'll start realizing, ah, I can control this dream too. I have power over this dream too. I don't have to just go along with this dream. And when that moment comes, suddenly we wake up. And that's this process that Krishna is inviting us to participate in through these beautiful, simple, but extremely deep words of his. Narayani, you have any thoughts to add? Well, I was thinking one of the main reasons why an avatar or a self-realized master comes on earth is because his compassion for each one of us. That's all. He doesn't come here for anything related to himself. But because he can clearly see like Arjuna sees, there is a big disease right now going on on earth and it's not the COVID-20, 90. It's about the disease of ignorance. And every master that comes has only one purpose, to 
give us the right medicine so we can really understand the importance of coming back to our center to understand what truth is all about, where to find that truth and how to perform that consciousness of Dharma, of truth in every day of our lives. So I was thinking, if that's the only purpose that an avatar reincarnates just for you, for me, why not my way to reciprocate that compassion towards me? It's behaving myself with that compassionate spirit towards everyone around me. Only then we'll be able to really detach ourselves from that personal involvement. Because when we develop true compassion, we will be able to put ourselves in others' mm, feelings, in others' disappointments, in others' behaviors, and not judging them. So I think this is a crucial part of getting out of this dream. Dream in every interaction, if possible, throughout this week, let's make an effort not to judge other people because if Krishna would to judge us or Arjuna or anyone else, believe me, which is there is no hope for any one of us. So as much as you can, if you want to attune yourself to the consciousness of Krishna, why not to start channeling the energy of compassion and do as much as you can to help other people. In fact, one of the wonderful things that is happening nowadays with this COVID-19, 90? 19. <laughs> I never say it right, is that so many people want to help others. So whatever is happening, it's working. It's just bringing out from people that compassionate spirit. So I would say from what you explained today and what Krishna and why avatars come is for their compassion towards us. So let's start attuning ourselves with that energy and channel that outwardly through the world. All right. Well, we'll try our best, won't we? <laughs> okay, I, I'm assuming all of you were shouting yes with great enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs>